We are. Um, <laughs> we, you know, I could say something, but I'm not saying anything. This is taped. I can't say anything. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, um, we are in Acts 21. We're getting to the end. There's 28 chapters in Acts. Next week will be kind of like a chunk we'll be covering only because, uh, well, it's tough to teach the last ones. They're more like traveling around and stuff. But we're coming in this chapter to the end of Paul's... He had three significant missionary journeys, and this is the third one. And it's, it's his final missionary journey of, of planting churches raising up leaders and communicating the gospel of the kingdom throughout Asia, what was called Asia Minor at the time. And from here, after this, now he's going to go back to Jerusalem. And he's going to be imprisoned and arrested and imprisoned, subject to these various trials that's going to take place in the book of Acts. And then he's going to be sent off to Rome to appear before the emperor. And, and there's this kind of this parallelism that you'll see between the life of Paul in the last days of Jesus, where, where uh, Jesus, too, traveled to Jerusalem. He prophesied about his sufferings that was going to take place. He was arrested and he's tried. He appeared before, the, before both the Jews and the Romans. And as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Paul experienced some of the very, very similar uh, situations. Now, Paul wanted to, so he's, he's basically done after all these years. This is near the end now with Paul's life. Paul's ministry. We've come to the end. And, and, and basically what's, what's happening is he wanted to stop at key locations on his way to Jerusalem in order to encourage the believers as well as to time his arrival at Pentecost. And so he and his company traveled by ship to the city of Tyre, and this, this is how we begin in verse 4. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this verse is very fascinating because just a short time before, we just looked at this last week. It's recorded in the, last, uh, the previous chapter. Paul himself said, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So we have Paul being compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then we have these other believers operating in the gift of prophecy and the word of knowledge urging Paul not to go. So like, what's going on here? I mean, certainly the Holy Spirit is not giving two opposite instructions. The Bible clearly says uh, at the same time both were speaking through the Spirit. So what I think happened is that the, these prophetic people in Tyre uh, saw in the spirit the things that were going to happen to Paul, such as suffering and Im imprisonment, and they urged him not to go forward. I think it's a situation of pe people trying to protect Paul from the dangers that were lurking. So they said correctly what was going to happen. They saw prophetically what would take place, but they misinterpreted it. They, their interpretation of what uh, was going to happen was wrong. And that should help us when we are pursuing to follow God's voice and, and the Holy Spirit's direction because sometimes we see things, we hear things that are they're clearly for, uh, of the Lord, but in our attempt to understand what we're seeing and hearing, we make wrong conclusions, we make wrong interpretations, or we misjudge the timing of things. And when we do, we, we run the risk of bring, bringing confusion 
to an otherwise clear instructions from God, like the Holy Spirit gave to Paul in the previous chapter. See, what could have happened if Paul was not convinced, let's say Paul was not convinced that he himself heard from the Lord, you know, go to Jerusalem. And, 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 and what could have happened is Paul would have listened to these prophecies, he would have turned back, not gone to Jerusalem, and that would have led him away from the will and purposes of God. And that should be a sobering thought for us. Because it's not just enough, you know, to, to see or hear something from God. It's just as important for, to pray for understanding, to pray for confirmation, to pray for timing. We don't want to go through the trap of seeing and hearing something correctly, only to com completely miss it and communicate something wrongly. And so here is what I think should have happened in this story. I think when these believers received insight regarding Paul's sufferings, instead of allowing their feelings to dictate their interpretation of the prophecy, um, I think that they should have sought the will of God. So they saw what's correctly, but they didn't seek really what the heart of God was. And once, once they received from God the understanding that despite the sufferings, despite the mistreatment, despite the uh, uh, imprisonment, Paul was nevertheless to go and be his witness. Then, if the believers would have gone through these motions of seeking God's heart, then they would have been able to bring, uh, able to confirm to Paul what he had already heard. That would have been really encouraging. Paul, we see that, that you're going to go through a lot of suffering. We see that you're going to do it, but, we're, but the Holy Spirit is nevertheless, he's saying to go. And, and Paul would have said, wow, that's just what God told me, you know, earlier. So, these were not encouraging prophetic words because they weren't interpreted correctly. And so that's why it's so important for us to get the entire picture of what God is saying to us. It's okay to wait. It's okay to be patient. It's okay to seek confirmation. It's okay to be accountable to other people. It's not that God is slow to speak. It's that we're slow to hear. Or we're too quick to act upon <laughs> what we hear, uh, you know, based upon what, we, what we've interpreted. And both of these problems need to be submitted to the Lord, where we need to pray that, that we're quick to hear, and that when we do hear, then we only speak what God gives us. There's a great verse, and you might have even thought about it when I just said that, in James 1. Be quick or swift to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, which is an interesting, you know, this three-part thing. It's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Well, if you apply it to the prophetic ministry, being slow to speak means that you are going to uh, th that would you you're going to be slow to speak what you hear until you rightly understand the interpretation and or the timing. Then you and, and then you remove your flesh in the process, which is such things as anger, judgment, and personal opinion, you know, from the word. And, and, and you want to remove that as far away as possible. So you want to be quick to listen, quick to hear what God has to say in any particular situation. You want to be slow to speak. You want to be um, wait to hear, God, is it time? Do I even speak this? Is this just for intercessory prayer, in other words? Or should I speak it? And what is the timing? I don't want to misinterpret this and blow the whole word. You know, so I want to be slow to speak, and I want to be slow to become angry and, and, and judgmental or put any kind of uh, feelings into this or, or personal opinion or anything like that. I want to remove the flesh as much as possible. So those are some helpful things as far as uh, prophecy goes. 
which is interesting since we just had a prophetic um, symposium yesterday. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's more on prophecy. Uh, Acts, we go to verse 7 to 14. A little lengthy passage, but I need to read the whole thing in context. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at uh, Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelism, one of the seven. And he had married, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. One of the seven was the, you know, the original of those, the guys that were set apart. Stephen was one of those. So, you know, they were significant servants of the Lord. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over. That's a, that's a good kid's name, I think, Agabus. Got to think about that. <clears throat> Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the order in this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, and we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, then Paul said, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. <laughs> so there is this difference in the way that Agabus communicated and the people respond. In, in other words, we still see the people. Now, this is a different town, but the, the people are thinking that suffering and prison for Paul had to be outside of God's will. Agabus, however, simply stated what was going to happen. He did not put his own interpretation on it. He either didn't know what it meant or he wasn't uh, given permission by God to speak forth any interpretation. Now, without going in, because this is a little sidetracking, but he actually was not 100% accurate either because that did not happen. Paul was bound but it wasn't in the way that he prophesied. So, but that's a whole other issue. I want to talk a little bit on the other side of this where um, we talk about suffering last week and how rare it is to read or hear anything about on the subject because people today tend to want to write books and talk about prosperity. And I do believe God wants to prosper his children, uh, prosperity and blessing that includes financial and material but I material wealth. I actually believe that God anoints people to produce wealth. I do. I think that uh, to be wealthy, but if God chooses to give that anointing or to give that blessing, it's always for the purpose of giving, not for storing up. <laughs> the Bible even encourages, uh, I forget the verse, but um, in, in Timothy, that commands those who are rich to be generous and to give it away, to be willing to share. So it's not money and wealth that are the root of all kinds of evil. It's the hoarding of money and wealth. And the other thing that to watch out for is the teaching that financial and material blessing trans wealth translates into the blessings of God, whereas suffering and trials means God withholding his blessings. It's what they believed in in the ancient days, and, and it's carried over throughout the centuries. And so the mentality here was that if the great apostle Paul, I mean, look at all the Pauls. I mean, this is near the end, not of his life, but, you know, because he's going to go into prison and all that, you know, write letters and everything. But, I mean, it's the end of his ministry time out on the road, you know. And, and, and look at all he accomplished. And if the great apostle Paul was going to go down this way at the hands of the enemy, they believed that could not be in the 
will of God because God's will, they believe, is to shower us with prosperity and blessing. And that's what we're subject to hearing often today, that we are to assess our relationship with God based upon what he gives us in this life. But back in chapter 20, Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing. And he wrote to the church at Philippi saying, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And we love to quote that last verse. We never put it in context, rarely, I should say. Uh, but, but let's consider the context. Followers of Jesus can do everything through him who gives us strength once they learn a secret. You see, the secret of being content. And how did Paul learn the secret of being content? Well, when he was well-fed and when he was hungry, when he was being stoned and left for dead, and when he was being provided for, when he was living in, with you know, material means or when he was in need of things. He, lear he, wa he learned this secret. And I think Paul call called it a secret because most people don't know much about that kind of a lifestyle, what he's talking about. Two people are, are taught only be content when life is, mm, you know, the mountaintops, when life is plentiful, when you're being blessed, when things are good, whereas we should be dissatisfied when we're hungry, when we're in need, physically hungry, when we're in need, when we can't pay the bills, we should be dissatisfied. But Paul is saying whether you're wealth wealthy or just getting by or anywhere in the middle, there is a secret of contentment that you can discover. And I believe it's a divine secret that's waiting to be revealed to those who seek it. In other words, God reveals his kingdom secrets to those who truly desire to live according to kingdom principles, kingdom mindsets, and seek after it. And so if we want to be able to do everything through him who gives us strength, we have to learn the secret of being content. And, and that means that we do not allow circumstances to dictate our, the, our degree of uh, uh, contentedness. Because that's often what we do. Our circumstances dictate if we're filled with joy or we're filled with frustration, you know. It's the stuff that's going on around us. What should, what should determine our degree of contentedness is our relationship with God, is how are we connected with God, you know. And that's why Paul asks in verse 13 of Acts 21, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He's basically saying, don't get so emotionally caught up in the fact that I'm leaving, that I'm going to suffer and die. It's part of the call. You know, that's basically what he's saying. It's part of being committed to the kingdom. It's okay. I'm ready. Verse 17 to 26. When we arrived at Jerusalem, so now they've, now they've come. The brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. 
take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself, you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them. This was back when um, James commanded a letter to go out. We have written to them our decision that they should abstain from foods sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took them in and purified himself among them. So it's it's an interesting scenario. In a casual reading of the passage, you may think that Paul was compromising here. You know, he who <laughs> was so adamantly opposed to uh, legalism and, and the, the salvation through circumcision, if you will. He w- it, it, but this is not the case. Paul, everywhere Paul went, he was misinterpreted, he was misunderstood. And the more he taught about salvation by grace, the more he was falsely um, accused of turning uh, Jews against uh, uh, and away from Moses. But the truth is that Paul understood that in the priesthood of Aaron and the, 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 the laws of Moses, the animal sacrifices, the purification of what Paul was just about to do, all of that were once and all for all fulfilled through the sacrificial death of Jesus. He knew that. He also knew that God was finished with the temple, demonstrated when the veil was torn from the top to the bottom at the death of Jesus, and that, that now the body of Christ is that temple, that place of holiness, that place of God's presence. In fact, the physical Jewish temple would soon be demolished and destroyed in 70 A.D., not long from now, but the temple of the Holy Spirit would continue on. So even though Paul himself a Jew, understood that things such as circumcision counted for nothing. He also knew that the church in, in uh, Jerusalem had this strong Jewish contingency that found it difficult to abandon their previous lifestyle. They were Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they had a difficult time um, uh, you know, leaving their previous lifestyle behind, and they insisted on continuing to follow these cultural expressions of Judaism, and it included obeying all of the law of Moses and all of the feasts and the festivals and all all those kind of things. And so Paul had people that tried to change him, but there were the others, particularly like James here, who all James was trying to do was that, listen, you need to make a public demonstration that you're not opposed to the law. And so... um, I think Paul concluded, you know what? It's probably going to be better if I just go through this legalistic action. It doesn't mean anything to me whatsoever, but I'm just going to do it so that, you know, my friends that are traveling to me are not going to be embarrassed or harassed or persecuted. Um, and I think that's better rather than just to ignore what the church is asking of us. So he may have considered it's better to be flexible rather than rigid. Uh, and defiant in this situation, thinking that, you know, the unity, and I've talked about that before, Paul's heart was for unity. And, hey, you know, I'll do this. You want, if that's what it's going to take to keep us united, I'll, I'll go ahead and do this. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, and 23, Paul wrote this, to, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. That's what he was doing here. <laughs> to those under the law I became like one under the law, though I am not free from God's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, 
that I may share in his blessings. What a heart, you know. What a heart. He knew who he was. He had an identity. He, had, he understood his identity. And so it didn't matter to do some, something that other people might judge as being hypocritical, that not, other people might judge as, oh, he's just compromising, or he doesn't really believe that. You know, he didn't care. If it took uniting the church by him going, you know, that's what he did with Timothy, if, you're, if you recall. Uh, he had Timothy circumcised. Not because he valued circumcision. He wrote it that he doesn't. But because he saw the values of the Lord was to set captives free. And so if there were some that would, could thwart their plans by falsely accusing um, Timothy of not being, well, it wouldn't be falsely accusing him, it, it would be that he shouldn't be ministering because he's not circumcised, then just, you know, Paul's attitude, just get it over with. Just get circumcised, let's get on with it. You know, Paul's attitude was, let's do whatever it takes to finish the work of God that he's given us to do, you know? And not worry about all these minor things. He didn't care about his physical life. He didn't care about what people thought of him. Yet he also didn't care if he had to submit himself to these what he considered worthless acts in order to win people's uh, to win people into the kingdom. And so he was completely committed to the kingdom. Jesus said, of course, seek first the kingdom, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. All, what, what, in context, what was Jesus talking about? All these things. What was he talking about? Well, he talked about the birds before, right? He talked about the lilies of the field. In other words, your needs are going to be taken care of. All you will be taken care of when you seek him. It's a principle that the apostle Paul understood and that we need to understand and live by as well, where we seek first the kingdom as well as the kingdom, king of the kingdom, and then all these things will be given for you. And that's later Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, you know? In other words, don't stress out. Don't live in worry. Don't live in anxiety. All you have to do is keep your eyes focused on the king and the kingdom, and, and he's going to provide for you. When, when the Lord is placed first in everything, then we, we can expect all that he's promised, right? Yeah, we can, as long as we do that. Let's stand together. It was a different kind of, um, you know, the title of this message is Secure in Our Identity. And the reason I chose that message is because I, for me, that's the example that the Apostle Paul sets in this chapter of one that was secure in who he was. And so I would like to pray this morning for those that may be suffering from an identity crisis in the sense that because of things that others have said about you, you know, the things that, that, that people say about us when we're little, when we're young, the things that, excuse me, your parents said about you, you know, you'll never amount to something, you're ugly, you're this, you're that, that you know, things that your parents didn't necessarily want to hurt you, um, and you're bad at this, or you'll never, you know, those kind of things. Then you've got your peers who typically are ruthless when you're little, and then you've got siblings who are worse than that. 
So you got these three things going on. So what's going on now in, in your first early years? Your identity is being formed, and I, don't, I won't even throw in the, the thing about the enemy's lies because he feeds off of what other people do, and he just brings in his lies, and it becomes this thick la- layer of lies and this web of lies. And so, so you know, it, but, but what's happening is our identity is being formed at those ages, and due to the effectiveness of the enemy's lies on top of all this, you're really not sure who you are or what, you've, or what you're called to. And part of the problem is that sometimes you, you care too much about what other people think of you in comparison to what the Father says of you. And it's difficult to hear what the Father says of you and His assessment because of all the things that are still in your mind about what other people have said about you. And so we want to pray that, that you see, it was like the prodigal son who couldn't hear the father's assessment of him. Remember, he could not hear the father's assessment of him. Be- therefore, he did not know who he was or to what he was called. And the difference between the apostle Paul is that he knew who he was. He knew he was what he was called to. People were always trying to change him, but Paul's focus was just pleasing the one who sent him. And that's the place the father wants to bring us this morning, a place of being secure in identity, secure as a son, secure as a daughter, secure in who we really are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would break the, the words spoken over us that formed this false identity. It's saying that we kind of just naturally begin to live out in our lives because people said we were this and that. And it formed who we are, but it's not really who we are. And Lord, I break the power of the lies of the enemy that fed upon this and reinforced it and twisted those words and built a fortress over our minds with it, Lord. Break the power of that in Jesus' name. And Lord, we ask that you would show us who we are in you, how you created us. Because if we think of everything that's ever been said to us as far as negative stuff, which there's a lot over each one of us, if we think of all those things, we can honestly say, Lord, that you did not make us that way. That is not being fashioned after your image. That is a defaced image, fashioned after sin and rebellion. And we reject that image. We reject those words spoken to us. And we receive words from our Father in heaven.